السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So inshallah we're going to continue with the tafsir of uh, Surah Al-Fil and last week we didn't really go into the, the detailed tafsir of the first verse but what we did what Uwais Khani did was he read from um, tafsir ibn Kathir or the English translation of tafsir ibn Kathir and we went through the story of the army of the elephant as Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentions in summarized form at the beginning of that surah. And I think that last week some of uh, some of us online or some of the people online had difficulty following uh, what was being read because the mic wasn't picking it up very clearly. But what I would say is that if you want to go back you can get the PDF online so you can read through what Ibn Kathir is saying or follow the reading of it. And all I've done really is just annotate and commentate on some of those points that I mentioned. So where we kind of finished last week is Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentions the whole story. And then I mentioned a couple of statements. Um, and uh, those statements, one of them was a statement of Aisha radiallahu anha that she says that I saw in Mecca two of the people who are from the army of the elephant disabled or paralyzed, blind and begging in the streets of Mecca. And the other narration is from Ummu Hani radiallahu anha who is the sister of Ali radiallahu anha Abu Salih said, I saw in her house, the house of Ummu Hani, some of the stones or the pebbles that were used to pelt the army of the elephant. So those two narrations um, seem to show that, number one, anyway, the people of Mecca, this is something which is well known to them, even during the time and the lifetime of the Prophet And remember that Aisha radiallahu anha is significantly younger than the Prophet so the Prophet ﷺ is like, you know, maybe 30 odd, maybe f more years older than Aisha radiallahu anha. So if Aisha is seeing this, and she's someone who's witnessed this despite her relative young age, then the people of Quraysh who are around the age of the Prophet ﷺ would have known, and it would have been very common knowledge as to what transpired during that incident of the army of the elephant. And obviously those remnants are still around and you know some of those um, some of those things are still are still known and the reason why i mention this is because when we come to the beginning of the first verse where allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says alam tara do you not see right the scholars of tafsir give two or three interpretations of what that means does it mean physical seeing actual eyesight do you not see as in you physically see something you know don't you see the weather outside don't you see the car don't you like a physical seeing or viewing? Or is it alam tara, don't you see, as in don't you know? So it's not a condition that you necessarily saw it with your own eyes, but it's something which is so well known and so widely accepted that it's, the meaning is don't you know? Right? As we often see, oh, don't you see if you went there? Don't you see if you did that? Right? It doesn't actually mean that you physically saw, but it means that it's something that's so well known by common knowledge that therefore, you know, you, you just verbalize it as being eyesight. Right? And the reason why in Arabic it's called seeing, even though it's referring to knowledge, is because seeing is something that you have certainty with. And because of how common that knowledge is and how widely transmitted it is, it is almost as if it is something which you have seen with your own eyes. 
And then the third interpretation, I'm going to go through who said what, but the third interpretation is, Alam tasma'. Did you not hear? Meaning, did you not see as in, did you not hear from others who saw firsthand? Right? And we gave, I think I mentioned last week, like the example would be in our time of us hearing stories from World War II, right? or maybe the Cold War, or something that took place before, you know, I'm sure many of us were born, maybe not all of us, but some of us uh, were born, and then, but we hear the stories because our parents, our elders, our uncles, people, neighbors, so on, people within our communities fitness, witness those incidents firsthand, right? And so when you hear it from them, it's as if you saw or as if you had knowledge. And Imam Qurtubi, rahimahullah, uh, has an interesting statement in this. And he says, rahimahullah, in his tafsir of this verse, he says that the story and the incident of the elephant was from the miracles that were given to the Prophet wasallam. even though it's not a miracle that was given to him, as in it wasn't displayed at his time and during his time. It's something which comes just before the Prophet wasallam is born. However, it's something which is given to prepare for the coming and the birth of the Prophet so that Allah could show and elevate his status even before he was born And that's why when the Prophet is then reciting this verse to the Quraysh of Mecca, Imam Qurtubi says, he's reciting it to them and he's saying, Alam tara Do you not see what Allah did with the people of the elephant or the army of the elephant? He's speaking to people who did witness it firsthand. People like his uncle Abu Talib, people like Umayyah ibn Khalaf, right? people like the elders of Quraysh who are older in age than the Prophet So if the Prophet is born in the year of the incident, there are people who are older than him, 5, 10, 15 years, who remember clearly that incident that took place. And so it's as if he is speaking to them and he is saying to the rest of them, even if you didn't see the actual army of the elephant come and what took place, you saw the remnants and the after effects, like Aisha radiallahu anha is saying, right? Aisha is saying that I saw people who survived from the army of the elephant and this was their state in the streets of Mecca. This is their situation. <coughs> so do you not see those of you that were actually alive and witnessed that firsthand? And do you not see those of you who didn't see it firsthand, weren't there, but you saw their after effects. You saw those people begging in the streets of Mecca. And that's what he says. Rahimahullah uh, Ta'ala. And that's why he mentions these two t- statements, the statement of Aisha, radiallahu anha, and I think it's either in his tafsir or another one, that the narration of Umuhani or the stones being found in a house is also mentioned. That it's something basically which was a prevalent and common knowledge amongst the people of Quraysh. And then Imam al Qurtubi says, so we have like three kind of opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir as to what does Alam Tara mean? Do you not see? He says the first of them is that did you not see as in physically see? And that was the opinion of Al-Imam As-Suddi, right? Al-Imam As-Suddi, who is one of the commentators of Tafsir. And one of the things that inshallah I'm working on and hope that inshallah in the next few weeks it will be ready, is I'm writing up a, a brief biography of all of the famous scholars of Tafsir and all of the names that we mentioned often, right? Because it's very difficult for me to say, every time I say As-Suddi to stop and, and give a brief biography of who he is or who he was and what he did and so on, because it becomes repetitive, number one. And number two, there are a lot, a, lot, a lot of names that we mention and we repeat often. So I'm going to try to prepare this, inshallah ta'ala, maybe it can be put up on the portal somewhere. Uh, I don't know if we can pin stuff somewhere, but anyway, well, uh, somewhere the, on the portal, and that way you can refer to it, right? So when we go through these names, we don't have to keep stopping and giving a brief biography of each one of them. 
But anyway, Asuddi said that it means a physical eyesight, right? And Muqatil said, Alam tara'i alam ta'lam. Do you not know? Do you not see meaning? Do you not know? Why? Because that's the majority, right? Those who physically saw the incident of the elephant when this verse is revealed, which is in the Meccan period, right? The Meccan era of the prophethood of the Prophet ﷺ, they are few in number now. Many of them have passed away. Many of them are very old and so on. So the vast majority of people that are being spoken to are who? People who didn't see, but they heard. And they heard all of the people speaking about it, right? Something so common, right? That it's not something which anyone would doubt or anyone would question, right? It's like someone questioning in our time whether World War I or World War II took place. It's so common, it's so well-known, it's so prevalent that it's something which is, as we say in Arabic, mutawatir, right? It's something which is so commonly narrated that it can't possibly be false or a lie. So Muqatil said that it means, do you not know? And this was the tafsir or the interpretation that Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah gave in his Sahih. In his Sahih al-Bukhari, when he came to the tafsir of this surah, he also gave this interpretation or this commentary. And it said that... When you say the tafsir of the surah, do you mean the hadith? Yeah. So Imam Bukhari has like a, a whole book, right, on the tafsir of the Qur'an. Yeah, so he mentions narrations in his Sahih al-Bukhari, one of the whole chapters, like the whole kitab, right, which is like a chapter. But one of the whole like chapters within that is, is dedicated to, to tafsir. Right? And so he goes through all of the relations of tafsir. Um, and the hadith are yeah, connected to them. So we have the first statement, as-Suddis, the second one, which is al-Muqatil, and which is mentioned in al-Bukhari. And the third one is attributed to Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah, that he said, alam tasma', meaning, did you not hear? Which is kind of the same as the last one, right? Did you not know? You know because you heard, right? And he's saying, alam tasma', did you not hear? And it is very similar in terms of, of meaning. And obviously, the Prophet ﷺ is the first one being spoken to because Allah Azzawajal is revealing the Quran to him. Alam tara kayfa? Did you not see? Do you not know? Have you not heard of the incident of the elephant? But obviously, it is meant to be more general than the Prophet ﷺ. So even though, and this is often in the Quran, where the Prophet ﷺ is addressed firsthand, but the meaning is not to address him specifically. It is a general statement for all of the Muslims and all of Quraysh and everyone who reads these verses. Did you not see, did you not come to know what took place with the people of the elephant or the army of the elephant? And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala said in his tafsir, did you not see, O Muhammad, through knowledge, meaning through the knowledge that was given to you, what your Lord did with the people of the elephant, those who came from Yemen and they wanted to destroy the Kaaba and their leader was Abraha. And Imam al-Mawardi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he said, did you not see, meaning do you not see the effects? Do you not see the remnants of what took place with the army of the elephant? Right? That's kind of what we said that Imam al-Qurtubi was referring to. Do you not see either physically or do you not see like second hand because you can still see the after effects of what took place during that, that, that time? Right? And that's very common, right? You go to often historical sites and you find remnants of things that took place, right? Remnants of, you know, a battle that took place. You still see bullet holes, you still see graves. Those are remnants, right? They're after effects of what took place. So he's saying, Al-Imam Al-Mawardi, do you not see, as in do you not see the after effects and the remnants of what took place with the Prophet, uh, with the uh, army of the elephants? Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he said, therefore, the ru'ya, the sight or the seeing that Allah is referring to in this verse can be one of two. 
The first is, as we said, the actual physical seeing, and that's for those people who actually saw what took place from the people of Mecca. And it's also possible that Allah Azza wa is referring to sight as in knowledge. So it's not ru'ya basariya, it's ru'ya aqliya. It's not actual physical seeing, but it is knowledge or a sight of knowledge. And that is because anyone who lived around that time and was older than the Prophet Sallallahu would have remembered. They would have heard of and they would have remembered something uh, from the incident of the time of, of the elephant army. And he gives, an exa- gives a few examples, Ibn Ashur. He says people like Abu Talib, people like Abu Quhafa. Who's Abu Quhafa? Abu Bakr's father. Abu Bakr's father. Anhum. Abu Quhafa would become Muslim after the conquest of Mecca. And he was very elderly at the time. He was old anyway because Abu Bakr is of very close age to the Prophet So Abu Quhafa, people like him, people like Ubay ibn Khalaf, right? people like this are elders amongst Quraysh. Right? They're the seniors in age. And so even the Prophet when he's like receiving this revelation and he's, he's well into his 40s, there are there people who are older than him in their 50s, in their 60s, and they would have witnessed firsthand what took place. Abu Saud, who is one of the scholars of tafsir, he has a tafsir called Tafsir Abu Saud. Right? And Abu Saud, his, his tafsir is one of those tafsirs that focuses primarily on the Arabic language and grammar and eloquence and so on. He said in his, in his tafsir the same thing. He said the same thing that this ru'ya can be one of two and it refers primarily to the site of knowledge because that is what the majority of people that are being addressed with the Quran would have fallen. That's the camp that they would have fallen into. Al-Imam Ibn Rajab, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar, he said, and that's because this was so commonly known amongst them, that the Arabs were known to relay this as a story. They were passing it on within their sittings and in their gatherings, it was well known. They had poetry about this. So they had, uh, had poetry that they had made concerning this incident and how Allah Azza wa Jal saved his house. And within this story, he says, rahimahullah ta'ala, Allah Azza wa Jal shows the, sanct- the sanctity of Mecca. And how Allah Azza wa honors it and preserves it and he gives it a sanctity. And it also shows the coming of the Prophet And it is a sign to show his prophethood and his messengership. And that is because when the Prophet will come, his religion is also based on sanctifying the Kaaba, sanctifying the Haram. Because you pray towards Mecca, you make Hajj and pilgrimage towards Mecca. And that is obviously the land of his birth and where he grew up and where he received revelation initially. And then that's why the Prophet ﷺ, even after his expand, Allah Azza wa wrote for him and allowed him to come back and to conquer that land and to come back to the state, the city of Mecca. And Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah ta'ala said, and he favored the opinion that he means, do you not know as in, do you not, do you not see as in, do you not know? He said, do you not know, O Muhammad, and those people who are around you, who are either of your age or came before you or came after you, because of all of the information that came to them and all of the stories that reached them, do they not see what Allah Azza wa Do they not know what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did with the army of the elephants? Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuk what your Lord did with ashab al-feel. And Allah Azza wa calls them the companions, or ashab means companion, right? Like we say about the companions of the Prophet they're called sahaba, right? The companions of the elephant. Al-feel, the al is to specify, right? It is to specify an elephant. So it's not just a random word, not feel, which will make it generic, any elephant. It is the elephant, right? Al-feel. 
And that's because, as we said, the scholars, I think we touched upon this last week, that the scholars differed as to how many elephants were in the army. Was it just the one or was it more than one? Either way, though, uh, Ibn Ashur says in his tafsir, the alfil, the elephant, is referring to the elephant that Abraha had, right, the leader of the army. Even if there are other elephants, Allah Azza wa is referring to that one specifically because he is the head of the army and so his elephant is, if you like, the head of the elephants, right? And so it's referring to that because of its position within the army. Just as he says in the battle of Al-Jamal, right? The battle of Jamal which took place between Aisha radiallahu anha on one side and some of the companions and Ali radiallahu anha on the other side, right? That civil war that took place between the Muslims. It is known as Ma'arakat al-Jamal, the battle of the camel. What's the camel? The one that Aisha radiallahu anha was riding, right? That's what it's referring to. Does that mean that there were other camels in the army? No, there were many other camels, right? The armies were full of camels. But it's referring to her because she was the head of that army or she was considered to be you know, one of the leaders of that, that, that group of companions and Muslims. And so therefore it's referring to her and to her camel even though there may be others. So he says, the opinion that says that there was only one elephant in the army, al-feel therefore, therefore becomes easy, right? To understand the elephant, there's only one elephant anyway. And if there were more than one, if you were to take those other opinions of amongst the scholars of tafsir, that there were more than one elephant, right? There was a, a group of them or whatever. What do you call a, a group of elephants? A school? A herd? I don't know if it's a herd. A herd of elephants? Maybe a herd. Anyway. Whatever, right? So, anyway, a group of elephants, right? Even if there's more than them, the Alfin is referring to the one that Abraha is riding, just as in the Battle of Al Jamal, the Al Jamal, the camel, is referring to the one that's being ridden by Aisha, radiallahu anha. So, so one of the opinions amongst the scholars of Tafsir, therefore, is that there was only one, one elephant. And in the narration that we uh, read last week, the one that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, mentions, he seems to kind of allude to this. He doesn't actually say that, but one of his narrations or part of the story seems to allude to that, the fact that there was only one elephant. Why? Because he says that it was a gift that was given by a Najashi. So when you know, Abraha kills his, his rival general and he takes over Yemen, and then he goes and he kind of like sends a message to a Najashi who's the leader, the, the the leader of Abyssinia and Habasha, and he says to him, oh, I'm still your faithful servant, and I'm here building you this amazing uh, temple or church or whatever it is. Uh, it is said in that narration that what did the Najashi send back to him? Mahmoud. He sent him Mahmoud, right? Mahmoud is the name that's given to this elephant, right? And so he sent back to him this elephant, and that seems to imply that there was only one elephant. He doesn't say it explicitly, but he doesn't mention any others either, and Allah Azza wa knows best. However, this was the opinion that some of the scholars of tafsir chose. Amongst them was Muqatil. Muqatil ibn Sulaiman was one of the famous scholars of tafsir and commentators of the Quran. Yet others said that there were more. al dahak ibn Muzahim, also a famous commentator of tafsir, he said there were eight. He said there were eight elephants. And al-Baghawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, Imam al-Baghawi in his tafsir, in his tafsir al-Baghawi, he said, and it is also said that there were twelve. So we have one elephant, we have eight, and we have twelve. Right? And he says, and the reason why Allah Azza wa Jal only refers to one, either because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to the main one, which is the one that Abraha is writing, or he says, in order to make the ending of the verses rhyme. 
Because in Arabic, if you were to pluralize the word feel, right, feel means elephant, it would be in one of the plural of feel, fiala, fiala, right, with the ta at the end, and therefore all of a sudden, the end of the verse is no longer finishes with the lamb, and you kind of like lose the rhyme or the rhythm within that surah. So he says it's possible that Allah Azza wa kept it as al-feel in order to keep the end of the the ends of the surahs, you know, going in that same way. Right? So it's always ending with a lamb. Al-Razi, Imam Al-Razi in his tafsir, uh, he makes a very interesting point, and that is that he says, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala call them ashab al-feel? The companions of the elephant. Right? That's the literal meaning of ashab. Right, it's often translated as the army of the elephant or the people, the, yeah, the army of the elephant, right? And so on. But the actual word ashab is like sahaba. Right? And a sahib is someone who's your companion. Right? Ashab al-feel. Why does Allah Azza wa call them ashab al-feel? Why doesn't he call them, for example, the owners of the elephants? Right? Or the riders of the elephants? Or the, I don't know, the... Uh, the the people who, who kind of control the elephants. Right? Why doesn't he use a word? Why doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describe them in a way that would show that they are the ones who are in charge? Because when you say that someone is a sahib, companion, you're almost kind of saying that they're what? Equal, in a way. Right? Your friends, your companions are people who are kind of like equal or they are similar to you. Right? They're similar age. You kind of like spend time together, you're with them and so on. So why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refer to them in this way? Yeah. To not give them so much respect. Okay, to not give them so much respect. Sort of in a way where you show that the, the elephant was more wise compared to them. Okay, the, the elephants had more wisdom. They couldn't control the elephants after a while. That they couldn't control the elephants after a while. So what he says, Arazi, in his, in his commentary on this, he makes an interesting point, and he says that normally, when you say the companions of, you ascribe companions to the one who is their leader, right? To the one who they're known to be companions of, right? So the disciples of Jesus are called the disciples of Jesus. You ascribe them to Jesus, right? You don't say, I don't know, Jesus and his friends. You say the disciples of Jesus. You say the companions of the Prophet wasallam. Right? They, they ascribe to him because even in their companionship, he is the leader amongst them. So it's almost as if Allah is saying that in this army of, of you know, elephants and soldiers and leaders and generals, who is the one that has, you know, the, that has the honor of being ascribed to? It's the elephants. Right? Allah is describing, and, and that's like he kind of makes the points that, that the brothers raised here. And that is that number one, to show or to show a lack of honor for them. Right, to not honor them in any way. And this is often in the Quran. If you look at the wording of the Quran and you look at the Arabic that is often employed when Allah Azza wa is speaking about the disbelievers, when he's speaking about the nations that he punished, when he's speaking about the people of the fire, often in the Quran, Allah Azza wa uses wording that if you were to look at the actual Arabic, is always, always humiliating for them. Allah Azza wa always humiliates them even in the words that are chosen to describe them. Right? So for example, when Allah Azza wa Jal in Surah Al-Kahf, He says, وَرَأَى الْمُجْرِمُونَ النَّارِ And the disbelievers or the criminals on the Day of Judgment will see the fire. فَظَنُّوا أَنَّهُمْ مُوَاقِعُوهَا 
and they will know for certainty that they will fall therein. Right? They will see the fire of hell, they will know this is their final destination, this is their abode, they will know they will fall therein. But the Arabic word, and this, this, that's the general translation, if you look at the translations of, of that verse, it will say, and when the criminals see the fire, they will know that they will fall therein. Right? Or something similar to that. But the actual word in Arabic is ظن. What does a dhan mean? It's not certainty. It means to think. Why does Allah, if the meaning and the tafsir of the verse is that they will know, why does Allah not say they will know? Why does He say that they will only think? Because certainty in its connotations gives honor, gives confidence. If you're certain of something, it is a, it is a show of strength. Right? When you're certain of your field, your subject matter, whatever it may be, certain of anything, you have confidence. Right? You know what, what it is that you need to do. And that shows emotions of strength. It gives you confidence. And those are not emotions. Those are not things that Allah ascribes to the people of the fire on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So even when they know of something, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still, still describes them in a way that shows uncertainty. Uncertainty denotes what? Weakness. Right? It denotes that they don't know, that they don't have knowledge. Just as they didn't have knowledge in this life, even though certain signs came to them, they had certainty of proof, they had certainty, all of that stuff they ignored. On Yawm Al-Qiyamah, Allah Azza doesn't give to them that same certainty. Right? Just as Allah Azza says in Surah Taha that He will resurrect them blind. And they will say, Oh Allah, why are we blind when we had eyesight in the life? And Allah Azza will say, because you chose to ignore our verses then, and so you will be ignored now. Right? And it's the same thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never gives to these groups of people in the Quran, even in the wording that is employed in the Arabic language, Allah Azza wa doesn't honor them. Right? Doesn't give them anything that is to show them a sign of honor. And so that's the first reason that Ar-Razi says, right? The first reason, therefore, is to negate from them any type of honor, any type of respect. And secondly, as always mentioned also, because it is to show that the elephants had more wisdom, right? And as, as the brother said as well, the elephants had more wisdom than them. Because the elephants, you know, according to that narration that we read last week, Ibn Kathir mentions, that when it came to the time of actually entering into the city of Mecca and attacking it, the elephant refused. Sat down, wouldn't be moved, wouldn't go. If it was pointed to any direction other than Mecca, it would get up and it would start. But if it was pointed in the direction of Mecca, it would sit down and it would stop and it would refuse to move. And that's why Allah Azza wa says in the Quran regarding the disbelievers, "Inhum illa kal an'am, balhum adallu sabila." They are like cattle, nay, but they are more misguided, right? Because the animals, as we know, have no free will. They obey Allah and they listen to Allah. They listen to the commands of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, right? And they have. That, that sense of you know duty to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's what Allah Azza wa says in the Quran to everything in the heavens and the earth praises and glorifies Allah. Everything the heavens and the earth, everything within it praises Allah, but it's just that you do not understand their praise and their glorification of Allah. Everything praises Allah except for two, two creations, humans and jinn. They have free will, they have choice. The angels, the plants, the animals, the fish in the sea, the insects, the birds, all of them, they praise and they glorify Allah 
in tongues and in ways that we don't understand. There is nothing except that it praises, praises its Lord, but you do not understand its praise. And there are ahadith that mention, and verses of the Quran that mention that even inanimate objects, objects that aren't living, praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the wrong way. The mountains praise Allah. Right? Allah says, لَوْ أَنزَلْنَا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ عَلَى جَبَلٍ لَرَأَيْتَهُ قَاشِعًا مُتَصَدِّعًا مِنْ خَشْيَةِ اللَّهِ If the Quran was to be revealed upon a mountain, it would crumble and shatter into dust out of fear of Allah. That's a form of praising Allah, fearing Allah. And we have the hadith in which the Prophet says that the sun every morning or every evening that it sets, it comes and it prostrates before the throne of Allah and he seeks permission to continue upon its course. And these are hadith that show that even these objects, these creations of Allah, they praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And they turn to Allah and they glorify Allah azza wa in their own way. So therefore, Al-Arazi is saying that the elephants have more wisdom, more knowledge. Right? Had more sense of, 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 of praising Allah and fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, knowing Allah azza wa rights than these people of, 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 of the army of the elephant. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to them as Ashab al-Feel. Doesn't give them any honor, doesn't refer to them in any way that would give them respect or would give them status even over the elephants that they were commanding and that they, the army was, uh, was part of. Al-Imam ibn Rajab rahimahullah ta'ala says, and the Prophet told us, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that the people will continue to make hajj. And this is connected in the sense that it's to do with the destruction of the Kaaba, that the people will continue to make hajj even after Ya'juj and Ma'juj. Right? And there's an authentic hadith in which the Prophet mentioned this. So we know that the Dajjal will come, Isa salam will be sent after the Dajjal is destroyed, Ya'juj and Ma'juj will emerge. And after Ya'juj and Ma'juj are destroyed, then that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send a rain that will cleanse the earth and the Prophet ﷺ said that after Ya'juj and Ma'juj, there will be Hajj. The people will go and they will perform Hajj. And there is a narration that says that Isa salam, because Isa will be there at that time, Isa salam will make Hajj during his uh, life upon earth when he returns, that he will also make Hajj. And it is only after this that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow the Kaaba to be destroyed. And that is from one of the final signs of of Yawm Al-Qiyamah, right? One of the final signs of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that's something which takes place after some of the major signs, by the way. So it shows that the major and minor signs are not in sequence. You don't finish all of the minor signs and then you start with the major signs, right? That's a common misconception. But even if you were to take the major signs as only as the 10 that are mentioned in that one hadith, then the other minor signs, there are minor signs that will still continue to come. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take away the souls of the believers. That's a minor sign. So no one of Iman will remain. The Qur'an and knowledge will be lifted. That's a minor sign, right? Because all of the believers have passed away and Qur'an has been lifted, knowledge has been lifted. And then the Kaaba will be destroyed. That is from the minor signs of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And the Prophet told us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that it will be destroyed by, and he called them, Al-Habasha, right? which is Abyssinians. They will come and they will destroy it. And he said that they will take it apart, stone by stone. They will take it apart, stone by stone. And that is when only upon earth there will remain the worst of creation and Allah Azza wa will establish Yawm Al-Qiyamah on the worst of creation. Right? He will establish Yawm Al-Qiyamah on those people who will consider to be the worst of creation. So this is verse number one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ 
رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ One of the, um, if you like, the tangents, right, and one of the side points or side notes or footnotes that also pertain to this verse is the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. Because this incident of the army of the elephant is a sign and a signal that the Prophet ﷺ will be born, right? And the Prophet ﷺ is preparing Mecca and Quraysh and that whole region for the coming of the Prophet and Imam Al-Qurtubi, and, and what we're going to look at is what the scholars said concerning the actual date of birth of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said, so we have the, the day, right, as in the date, the month, and the year. Right, so regarding the year, Imam Al-Qurtubi said that there are three opinions. The first of them is the opinion of Muqatil. And he said that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was born or rather the, he was born 40 years after the incident of the elephant. So the Prophet was born 40 years after the incident of the elephant. So you have the army of the elephant comes, 40 years later the Prophet is born. Which means what? That his prophethood is what? Another? 40 years after, which makes a total of? 80. Right? 80 years since since the and that that you know the other narrations that we mentioned of Aisha and so on that she saw people from the um, makes it difficult to understand that because then that means 80 years right and then obviously Aisha radiallahu anha is far younger than the Prophet so you're looking at, at least 100 years a century after the birth of the Prophet and there are still people from the army so that seems to be far-fetched but anyway it is what is mentioned on uh, as being the opinion of Muqatil and Al-Kalbi and Ubaid ibn Umair, they said that it was before, 23 years before the birth of the Prophet So the army of the elephant came to Mecca 23 years before the Prophet right? So that's opinion one and opinion two concerning the year. But the vast majority, the vast majority, to the extent that some of them even said there is ijma', which means there is agreement and consensus upon the, amongst the scholars, but as we can see, there isn't consensus and agreement. There are a few scholars who disagree. But you will find that one of the things that the scholars often do when they quote ijma' and consensus is that they mean the overwhelming majority. So even if there's one, two, three people in history that disagreed, they don't really, some of them anyway, they don't really consider that to be anything which negates the consensus of the vast majority of the scholars because what is three in an ocean of, of hundreds if not thousands, right? They don't have any evidences. Remember, so remember, there's no like accurate record keeping, right? There's no like dates of birth, there's no registers or anything. It is based upon narrations. So I don't know exactly what they based that upon in terms of. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the only way that would come is because they heard that narration from someone, right? This is something which, you know, an oral tradition, remember Mecca and the Quraysh have an oral tradition, right? It's passed, stories passed down from generation to generation. Right? That's how they understand these things. So um, perhaps, Allahu alam, maybe that, that's something which was there. But obviously the correct opinion, the opinion of the vast majority is that he was born in the year of the elephant. Right? He was born in the year of the elephant. And that's because it is, it is mentioned in the hadith that is authentic. Um, or some of the scholars consider it to be authentic. Uh, and that is the hadith of Qais ibn Makhrama that he said, I and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam were both born in the year of the elephant. 
Ali and the Prophet were both born in the year of the elephant. And there is another, another narration <coughs> which is collected in a Tirmidhi, but it is considered uh, to be weak. But it's also mentioned by um, Bayhaqi and others in other books of hadith. And it is one of those supporting narrations right, that, that, that support this position, even though the narration itself is considered to be weak. And that is on the authority of Al-Muttalib ibn Hantab ibn Al-Harith, that he said that the Prophet وسلم, and I were born in the year of the elephant. And he said that Uthman, an, the famous Khalifa Uthman ibn Affan, he said that he asked Qubath ibn Ashyam, the brother of Bani Ya'mar ibn Layth, he said to him, are you older or the Prophet he said, I, he said, the Prophet is older, but I was born before him. Meaning what? Yeah, out of respect, he's bigger than me. He's older, meaning older in, in position, in status, but I was born before him, meaning he's older in age. The Prophet was born in the year of the elephant, and that was the year that I had left the lap of my mother, meaning that I became a toddler, I started to walk, and so on. Yeah, so Al-Abbas is generally considered to be slightly older than the Prophet by a few years. Right? But he doesn't have a narration. The point is I'm mentioning the narrations that we have that actually specifically say that the Prophet was born in that year. Right? So Abbas doesn't have a statement, anything like that. But there are obviously companions older than uh, the Prophet Abbas, as we said, Abu Quhafa and others, older than the Prophet So you have these two narrations, one is authentic, one is weak, and both of them kind of like support each other anyway. But this was the opinion therefore that became the opinion of the vast majority um, of, of, of the opinion of the scholars. To the extent that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala said, Ibn al-Qayyim in Zad al-Ma'ad, he said, لا خلاف أنه ولد صلى الله عليه وسلم بجوف مكة وأن مولده كان عام الفيل. There is no difference of opinion that the Prophet وسلم, was born in Mecca and that he was born in the year of, of the elephant. Right? And Ibn Ishaq, the famous historian, rahimahullah, said he was born in the year of the elephant. And Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, said, and obviously Ibn Kathir is a historian in his own right, Al-Bidayah wa Nihaya, is, is one of the most amazing books of, of history and seerah that we have. He said, and this is the opinion of the vast majority of the scholars, and it is what is well known. And Ibrahim Ibn Mundir, who is one of the, one of the teachers of Imam al-Bukhari, Rahimahumullah, he said, and this is something in which the scholars have no doubt. So there are scholars, Ibn al-Jawzi, Ibn al-Qayyim, as we can see, Ibrahim, Ibn al-Mundhir and others, they said that this is an issue of ijma, right? That the scholars all agreed that the Prophet was born in the year of the elephant, even though, as we can see, uh, you know, it's slightly exaggerated in the sense that there are scholars who disagreed with that position and they, um, you know, they, they said otherwise. As for the day upon which the Prophet was born, then we know that it was which day? The famous one is 12th of April. No, 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 date, day. Monday. Oh, Monday. Monday. Right, Monday. Right, Monday. And that's because of the hadith of the Prophet the hadith of Abu Qatada al Ansari radiallahu an, which is clicked in Sahih Muslim, that the Prophet asked about Yawmul Ithnain, and he said, which means Monday, Yawmul Ithnain is Monday, and he said, Thaka Yawmun. That is the day that I was born on, and that's the day that I received revelation. Right? And that's why the Prophet would fast Mondays as well. Right? It's something which he would often do, he would fast on Monday. So there is hardly any like difference of opinion. Um, you know, 
any difference of opinion as to the, the Prophet being born on any other day. Right? Although it is mentioned, even though we have this hadith, there are narrations. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, and it is far-fetched, the opinion of those who said that he was born on a Friday. So there are scholars or there are people or historians, whoever, who said that he was born on a Friday. And obviously Friday is also an honorable day and a special day in our religion. But anyway, he said that that is a far-fetched uh, opinion to say that he was born on a Friday, not least because we have this authentic hadith in Sahih Muslim. So the year is the year of the elephant. The day itself is a Monday. Then we come to where the most difference of opinion is, and that is the exact date, right? the exact date and the month. Right? And there are many opinions uh, amongst the scholars, you know, like in terms of months anyway, it said Ramadan, it said Safar, it said like other months as well. But the main opinions that are considered uh, to be like the strongest ones, all kind of agree that he was born in Rabi' al-Awwal, right? Rabi' al-Awwal, which is, which month of the year? Who knows the Arabic calendar, the, the Hijri, the Hijri dates, right? You guys are like it's October and so on, right? What's Rabi' al-Awwal? Muharram, Safar, Rabi' al-Awwal. Right, so it's the third month of the year, the third month of the Islamic year. So, so Rabi' al-Awwal is the one that you have the most uh, opinions of. So the first of them concerning the date is the second, the second of Rabi' al-Awwal. Right, the second of Rabi' al-Awwal, and this was uh, something which Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentioned, and he said that it's attributed or is mentioned by Ibn Abdul Bar rahimahullah ta'ala, who is the famous scholar. Ibn Abdul Bar is one of the famous jurists of the Maliki Madhab and he has, uh, is considered to be from the Muhaqqiqeen and a scholar in his own right. He said that this is what was reported by Al-Waqidi from the authority of Abu Ma'ashar, Nujayh ibn Abdul Rahman al-Madani. Nujayh ibn Abdul Rahman al-Madani. And, and, and he's a, a scholar who, who died in, in 170. And he was considered to be like, you know, a famous scholar of Arabic and history and so on. He has like lots of writings on history. So he said that he was born, the Prophet was born on the second of Rabi' al-Awwal. Right? And this is something which Ibn Abdul Bar and Ibn Kathir both refer to. The second opinion that Ibn Kathir also mentions is the eighth of Rabi' al-Awwal. Right? The eighth of Rabi' al-Awwal. And he said that this was the opinion of Ibn Hazm. And others mentioned it from Muhammad Ibn Jubair ibn Mut'im. Right? Muhammad ibn Jubair ibn Mut'im. Jubair ibn Mut'im radiallahu an is a companion. Right? And his father, Mut'im ibn Adi, uh, did he become Muslim? I think he became I think he became a Muslim. But I don't remember. He has? Okay. Um, anyway, Jubair ibn Mut'im is, is a well known companion. His father, Adi ibn Mut'im, uh, was someone who, even before his Islam, was known to be extremely kind and compassionate, and someone who, who loved the Prophet and honored him even before Islam. So he's the one that said who when the Prophet returned from Ta'if after he had been pelted, it was him that came and he consoled him. Right? He was the one who came and he gave him safety and he, and he helped him and he brought him uh, through the streets of Mecca. And he's also the one who is said when the, when the Muslims were being boycotted, Right, in the Sha'ab of Abu Talib, those like a year or two that they were boycotted economically and politically and socially, and they were cast out to a desert within on the outskirts of Mecca, and no food was allowed to come to them, and no one would speak to them. All of the family, all the, all the Muslims and all of the clan 
of the Prophet ﷺ, Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib, all of them were placed in the Shi'b of Abu Talib. It is said that Mut'im ibn Adi, even though he was a non-Muslim from the Quraysh, he would actually send food into Mecca. He would bring, like they had a boycott area, a zone that you couldn't pass beyond, right? So it's like, this is like kind of the boundary. He would bring his animals, his, his, his flock, or some of his sheep, and he would set them free. So he wouldn't overstep because he knows it's not allowed for him. But he would set them free in the hopes that they would go down and the Muslims would be able to take them for food, right? Because the, the situation had become so extreme in that area, the Shem of Abu Talib, because of the boycott, that they would literally like boil anything that they would find on the ground to make a soup from it that they could drink. That's how difficult it would be. And they would take anything, trees and roots, box and, and roots and whatever they could find literally to try to boil it and make something that they could consume. Because that's how difficult the situation had become during that time. So Mut'im ibn Adi was known for his, for his generosity, for his compassion, for his mercy, for his kindness. And also because he was someone who, um, who it is said he was the one who actually then went and he tore up that, that, that treaty. Right, that treaty that they had, that the Quraysh had agreed. It's not a treaty, it's like, a, like an accord that they had written amongst themselves. The Quraysh had agreed that they would boycott these people, right? the Muslims and these clan of, of, the clans of Quraysh that belonged to the Prophet ﷺ, that he came from, that they would boycott them. And they wrote that accord and they stuck it in the Kaaba. And it said that he was the one who went and he whipped her up and they finally agreed that they would get rid of this accord and that they would break it. So... His son, Jubair ibn Mut'im, is a well-known companion. His son, Muhammad ibn Jubair ibn Mut'im, is the one who is narrating this. And it was the opinion of Ibn Hazm that the Prophet wasallam was born on the 8th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Right? And this is mentioned by other historians as well, Al-Khwarizmi and Ibn Dihya in his book and, and so on. So that's the second opinion. So the first one is the second. The second opinion is the 8th. The third opinion is the 10th. The 10th of Rabi'ul Awwal. And Ibn, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, says that this is what is mentioned by Ibn Asakir as being the opinion of al-Sha'bi and Abu Ja'far al-Baqir. Abu Ja'far al-Baqir is who? He, he is the, what is he now? The great-great-grandson of, of Ali radiallahu So he is the son of Zain al-Abidin, the grandson of Hussein, yeah, so the son of Zayn al-Abidin, the grandson of Hussein, the great-grandson of, of Ali radiallahu anhu. Is that right? Are you just nodding? No, 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 no. He's the son of, uh, yeah, he's the son of Zayn al-Abidin, the grandson of Hussein, the great-grandson of Ali radiallahu anhu. So anyway, Abu Ja'far al-Baqir is from the descendants of Ali radiallahu So he said that he was born on the 10th of Rabi'ul Awwal. The fourth opinion, and this is the most famous, right, and the most common, and the one that, you know, you can't miss every year, is that it's the, the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, right, the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. And Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, says that this is what Ibn Ishaq, the famous historian, mentioned, and it's mentioned also um, as being a narration from some of the companions, Jabir, Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, that they said that this is most likely the date that he was born. And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah says, and it's the opinion or the one that is most famous amongst the majority of the scholars. Mashhur in the Jumhur. It is the most famous opinion amongst the majority of the scholars and Allah knows best. 
that he was born on the 12th of Rabi'ah al-Awwal. So we have the year of the elephant, we have a Monday, and we have then in Rabi'ah al-Awwal, the 12th of Rabi'ah al-Awwal, um, which is the opinion of many. There is a fifth opinion, which is actually something which is done on, um, it was done, no, not the, the what did you say, 15? Yeah, there's lots of other opinions. But the opinion that, that I wanted to bring to you is one that is actually a more recent opinion. And that is what later biographers have done in their biographies, like Al-Mubarak Fori and others. Right? So Mubarak Fori is the one who wrote that book, um, The Seal Nectar, right? which is translated in English and others. They kind of did this thing, you know, like now you can go and convert dates, right? because they have this scientific like thing that they've done, so mathematical or whatever it is. Then you put in a date, a Hijri date, and it converts it to Gregorian calendar and so on. And so what they did is that they went back and they put in like 40 years before the Prophet ﷺ was born, or 40, 53, whatever odd years before the Hijrah, and then a Monday. It has to be a Monday because that's what the Hadith says. What would that equate to? And what they found is that it would be the ninth of Rabi'ah al-Awwal. They said that the Monday would be a ninth. And that's the one that you find, actually a few of them, um, including Mubarak Fori, they went for that. They said that that seems to be the strongest opinion because therefore we have now science added into the equation, maths and so on, and, and therefore that's what we have. Didn't the Arabs used to change the months around anyway? Because I know Allah Taala mentions that you know, the practice was stopped. But didn't they used to change the months around? When it suited them, they would say this is the month, or they were not allowed to try it. Yeah, but I think that's only some tribes would do that. Only some tribes would, would, would change the, the months around and say oh, it's actually not a sacred month and it's something else and so on. But the Arabs generally would know, right, that no, actually it is. Yeah. Because otherwise you can't do anything. If you mess around with months and dates, you, you, like the whole fabric of society just kind of like diminishes and breaks down, right? So anyway, that's like just a side thing. It's not something which we want to necessarily... Um, necessarily uh, you know go into like in terms of detail <laughs> so we have second we have eighth we have tenth we have twelfth and we have ninth right we have those five opinions and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best but as Ibn Kathir said the vast majority and obviously it's the most famous even in our time that he was born on the twelfth of Rabi al and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best okay any questions regarding that okay so let's move on then Alam, any questions online? Okay, so, yeah, so Sumaira asks, how would Muqatil derive 40 years? That's somewhat, I think, a waste of someone asked as well. I don't know. So I don't know what he based it upon. I can only assume that he based it on something. And Allah Azza wa knows best. The hadith of Qais, where is that source, please? Which was the hadith of Qais? Uh, I think when you said the book, Oh, the, the, the one that I said was authentic. Qais ibn Makhram, it's in Silsila Sahihah. Shaykh al-Bani, Silsila Sahihah, he mentions it um, in the seventh volume, uh, page number 433. In Silsila Sahihah of Shaykh al-Bani. Mut'im, Fasihah says, Mut'im ibn Adi didn't accept Islam. He died a few days before the Battle of Badr. Yeah, I think so. Because I think from what I remember, uh, there is a narration that the Prophet said, were Mut'im ibn Adi to be alive, I would free a number of the slaves or a number of the prisoners that they captured in Badr just because of him. Right. I think there is a narration to that effect and Allah knows best. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
the termites ate the, the treaty of the boycott. Is, is, I think. Bring it out and only the name of yeah, yeah. I think only. Yeah, I think there's two narrations though. I think one of them says that someone actually went and he tore it up. But anyway, either way. Um, or she either do we know of any descendants of the Prophet living today? Personally, no. I'm sure that there are there are many. Uh, Facebook. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a group in there. They're all in Pakistan, yeah. Uh, you're, you're not from there, are you? <laughs> and then, and then, um, yeah, so from a calendar, it is possible to calculate which dates were on a Monday to be able to narrow it down. And that's what those scholars did, right? So they narrowed it down and they chose the Monday and they saw what it would equal to. And, and they kind of said that it would be the ninth of Rabi al right? And that's what they chose. Anyway, it's not really a big issue in terms of like it doesn't really affect anything in our religion or anything. But it's something which, because Surah Feed speaks about the birth of the Prophet, it's something which is significant around the birth of the Prophet I thought it would be just an interesting point to bring up. So verse number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلٍ Did he not utterly confound their plans? أَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلٍ Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala said, Did Allah azza wa jal not make all of the efforts of the Abyssinian army, the army of Abraha and the people of the elephant, in terms of in trying to destroy the Kaaba, did he not make them utterly useless, their plans, and did he not make it instead for them destruction? Right? So they obviously came out with one vision, a mission, uh, a plan. They came to destroy something. They had a whole thing in mind. Did Allah not only cause their plans to go into disarray and confusion, but rather instead Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used those same plans to destroy them and to be the very means of their and, and their demise. Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah ta'ala said in his tafsir that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse is saying that Allah azza wa jal not make all of their plans and all of their plotting and all of their planning in trying to destroy the Kaaba did he not make it a, a, a means of their own misguidance and their own destruction to the extent that they wouldn't be able to go and do what they wanted but rather instead the opposite would happen. Right? So they went to destroy the Kaaba, but instead they would be the ones ended up being destroyed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Al-Qasimi, Jamal al-Din Al-Qasimi, who's uh, a Syrian scholar of tafsir, uh, he has a famous tafsir called, well, it's known as tafsir al-Qasimi. Uh, I think he, in the last century or so, he passed away, like in the 1800s or something. He's not like very, very old. Um, but he has like this tafsir, which is, which is a nice tafsir. He says within it, um, the same thing, that they came with a plan to come and to destroy the Kaaba, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned their plan upon them, and he used, or part of, part of what he did is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the very thing that they wanted to do, or the, the elephants that they came with in order to destroy the Kaaba, would be the reason that they wouldn't be able to destroy the Kaaba. They stopped, they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't move, and after that, that is when they were destroyed. And we have a hadith, in which the Prophet وسلم, when he was making the farewell hajj, it is said that the place that they were destroyed is today the place between Muzdalifa and Mina. So when you're coming back from Muzdalifa and you're going towards Mina, so if you look at the sites of Hajj, you have Mecca, Mina, Muzdalifa, and Arafah. Arafah is the furthest away. You come to Muzdalifa. Between Muzdalifa and Mina, there is a valley called Wadi Muhassar, the valley of Muhassar. And it is said that is one of the places where, or the main place where, they were destroyed. And that is when the Prophet 
was coming for the farewell hajj, he would tell the companions to hurry through the area because the Prophet didn't like to, to stay in places of punishment and destruction. When he would pass them by, he would tell the companions to, to hurry, right? which is very interesting just from a, a fiqh point of view because the general advice of the Prophet making hajj, right? for those of you who have been for hajj and so on, what is the general advice in hajj that he has in his sunnah? Slow down, be calm, don't rush, right? Whether it's Umar or others, whatever, be calm, be slow, don't rush, stay calm. But when he comes to this area, he's like, okay, everyone, hurry up, right? Rush, get through this place and at the other side because of it being a place in which there is destruction. Recommended what? Yeah, I mean, everyone's more or less in cars and stuff now anyway. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, if you're walking it, you walk like slightly faster. Like, I think that's like, it would be part of the sunnah to like walk. But if it's really busy and so on, it's not something which you have to like, you know, go through like extremes to do. If you can't, if you're, if you're on a train, you whiz past anyway, on those metros. If you're on a coach, you're either going at a decent speed or you're stuck in traffic, in which case you're not moving at all. So... A lot of this isn't really in your hands. If you're walking, yeah. And if you have the ability to go through faster, then, then yes. Does that mean the incident happened quite far away from um, the It's not that far, right? So this is on the outskirts because we know that he didn't come into the haram, right? And Mina and even Muzdalifah are part of the haram boundary. So only Arafah is outside of the haram. So we know that Abraha isn't able to go into the haram area. The haram doesn't mean the masjid itself. It means the whole sanctuary of the haram, right? Which surrounds the Kaaba and surrounds or that area of Mecca. So this is just outside of that. So he's literally on the border, right? He's literally there at the footsteps of the Haram and he can't go any further. Right? And Allah knows best. Al-Razi has an interesting point here uh, when he says that the word Kaid, Alam yaj'al Kaidahum. Did you not utterly confound their plans? Kaid, he says in the Arabic language, refers to trying to do harm, but trying to do it quietly silently, secretly. That's what Kaid refers to. So the word Kaid, Kaidahum, Kaid, is a plan that you plot or you hatch quietly and secretly in order to harm someone or to you know, cause their downfall or whatever it may be. But then he says, why does Allah Azza wa use the word Kaid? Because their plans were not secret. They weren't hidden, they weren't quiet. If anything, they're the very opposite. Abraha is announcing to the world, I'm going to destroy them. He brings an army of elephants. You couldn't be any more explicit or any more clear. Right? He's not afraid of anyone. He's not trying to keep it quiet. He's not trying to you know, like hide his way into Mecca or secretly find a way into Mecca that no one knows or sees him. He's literally going back past all of the Arabs. And as we mentioned last week in some of the nations of the Tafsir, he's fighting some of them, some of those clans and some of those tribes that come and oppose him. He's fighting them and he's defeating them and he's taking prisoners from them and he's proceeding on towards Mecca. And even when he comes to Mecca, he wants to see Abdul Muttalib. He wants to see the leader of Quraysh. He wants him to stay away and to let him go and destroy the Kaaba. He's like announcing himself. So why does he, why does Allah Azza wa Jalla then call it Kaid? If Kaid is a secret plan that you hatch, there's nothing secret about Abraha. And so he says, and it's an interesting like, you know, point, even though it's not mentioned in classical tafsir, but just as like a contemplation. He says that it's to show that what Abraha had in his heart was far worse than what he showed openly. That the actual plans that Allah Azza wa caused to be in disarray is the hatred that he had in his heart. Right? Because often when people sin or they do oppression or they do wrong, it is not just the outward action, 
not just what is apparent and what is seen, it is what's in the heart that drives that action. What is it in the heart that drives that oppression, that injustice, that transgression, that evil, that a person would commit so many crimes or do things in that way? And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. His outward actions are only a signal, a sign of what his heart concealed, what was in his heart and that his heart contained much evil. And it is those plans that he had within his heart. And who knows, Allah Azza wa alone knows what he had planned, what he would have done had the Kaaba been destroyed, what he would have done with the rest of Quraysh, how far he would have gone, what he would have done. It is those plans that Allah Azza wa also caused to go into disarray. Those are the ones that were scuppered. Those are the plans that were cancelled out. Right? And that is a sign and a threat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for anyone that tries to do harm and tries to harm others, that Allah Azza wa doesn't just look at the outward actions, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what is concealed within the hearts. And often when Allah Azza wa punishment comes, it doesn't just come in accordance to what is the outward action that a person may have done, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holds people to account and punishes them for the, seer, the intentions that they have made, the convictions of the heart that they have in terms of the evil that they may wish to do. And so Allah Azza wa says, أَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلِ Did he not utterly confound their plans? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And inshallah, I think we'll, we'll stop there. If there's any questions, any comments. Next week, we're back at the same time. So 8 o'clock is Isha and 8.30, inshallah, we'll start. Nothing? Okay. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.